Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to the very last Jazz Shapers of 2019. I'm Elliot Moss. Jazz Shapers is where the shapers of business meet the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. And our guest today is William Reeves, serial entrepreneur, angel investor and co-founder of Love Film and a lot more too. After graduating in economics, management and engineering, then a stint at McKinsey where he met his wife, William launched Fletcher Research, an online consultancy business back in 1997. The internet took off when I was in my formative career years, he says. I was in the right place at the right time. Next came Love Film. After William and Alex Chesterman, my jazz shaper in March of this year, pitched the same idea to an investor, they chose to join forces, launching Love Film in 2003. Eight years later, they sold it to Amazon for £200 million. And as William says, that was when I started thinking, do I want to work now? But without work, I'd be like a shark who didn't swim. Work is a natural hobby. And he's not bad at it. Going on to co-found Secret Escapes, the exclusive travel club, become chairman of fintech firm Nutmeg, and hold non-executive or operating roles at Zoopla, Paddy Power, and the snack company Grays. And he's currently CEO of Goodlord, the property tech platform aiming to transform renting by making the process fully digital. William joins us with his CV arriving on a freight train in a couple of minutes. We've also got brilliant music today from, amongst others, Esperanza Spalding, Jimmy Ponder and Miles Mosley. That's Jazz Shapers, the very last one in 2019. Here's Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers with Ping Pong. My last, and I will say it here now because he is, he's here, the best guest of 2019. Let's forget Alex Chesterman and other people you may know. Best looking, was it? Was that yeah, definitely. Be- best looking, most intelligent, yeah. most incisive. You haven't even said anything yet, but you will be. Uh, it's William Reeve, and he, as I said earlier, has a CV to die for, has been involved in many businesses, setting them up, running them, investing in them, doing all sorts. Welcome. Thank you. You have a very unusual background, I think. I've, I've interviewed many people on the programme over the last eight years, interesting degree, somewhat then a more predictable path in the McKinsey type thing and IBM type thing. But you set up a business very early. Some people sort of do a bit longer at McKinsey or they do something else. There you were two years in. Back in 97, if you can think that far back, what made you think, I can do this? I can set my own business up. I know what I'm going to do. I, I'm completely clear what will happen next. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And at the time, it felt like a pretty obvious thing to do, though uh, all my elders and investors were very uh, proud of what I was doing, which was sort of yes minister speak for you're completely bonkers. Uh, and um, I think I think it was a couple of things for me. One, it, it was partly um, a sort of forcing device that McKinsey had, which was that I was on a program that was two years long, and that they then they were very clear it was a kind of if you like fast track program, but it was, took two years, and then you had to go off and do something else, which in their world usually meant doing MBA, but didn't necessarily mean an MBA. But there, there wasn't a kind of option to carry on through, so. That kind of forced the question, like, I've got to jump off this diving board at some point. What am I going to do? That was part of it. I think the other part of it was 
you know, I remember being at, in my final year at university, looking at what I considered to be some of the best jobs out there, and uh, which were, I suppose, because it was management consulting I was looking at, they were paying pretty well relative to other graduate jobs. And I remember having a conversation with my flatmate at some point that I, I just realised what plumbers earned. And I was like, wow, plumbers earn more than I'm going to earn for quite a few years, don't they? And that feels a bit odd because I um, here's me sort of trying to become highly educated and going into a very competitive field and going into a field which sort of pays, pays top graduates kind of reasonable wage. And, and you actually, why aren't I learning to be a plumber? And that, that, that thought process led me to, well, of course, the reason they, plumbers actually make quite good money is because they run their own business. Maybe I should, so actually, if you run even a quite small business, like doing a one-man plumbing job, you end up making quite good money. So maybe I should be running my own business one day. That was the, so it was a bit of an intersection of the pair. And I'd had that conversation with a couple of people, and one of them was a very, very close friend of mine, Neil Bradford, uh, who was also at McKinsey, same cohort as me, and we're both facing the same diving board. You know, the, you've got to jump off. And we went, well, maybe this is the time to set up a business. Maybe we do it together. And we'd done stuff together before, so I think we had confidence that actually teaming up with each other would might make it all feel a bit less painful when we hit the water. So was it less about not having fear and more about thinking this is just the right thing to do and therefore it's quite logical? Because it looks like, you're, the way you're describing it now, actually, that's like, well, of course you'd do that. I mean, you listen, you talk about the plumber, you talk about, you know, if it's 40 grand in his, in his business and he's going to take most of that because the, the overhead is him or her... It doesn't sound like it was a great leap of faith, even though you're describing it as a diving board. The key thing that was a bit the wrong way up was that we went, let's set up a business was our first kind of argument. And then the second second thing was, all okay, good, what's it going to be? Well, that's the other thing. And, and, and it sounds like, I mean, this was, a, this was an IT research and consultancy business. And as I understand it, you sold two years later. In year three. In yeah. year three. Yeah. Pretty fast. Yes, you know, how, how, and, and just in a nutshell, before we go to off the second track, um, how did you do that? Because again, your first business, you're fresh out of McKinsey. Of course, you've learned and you've learned how to do all the things that McKinsey teach you in a in a rapid space of time. Yeah. But really, three year three. Yeah. No, and at the time, is I mean, I think what we achieved in those first two or three years, and I think of if I think uh, there was five or six like difficult things we did in that period. And the fact that, as an old man now, so to speak, looking back on that and thinking, heavens, we managed all that in less than three years. I don't quite know how we managed that, because I'm not sure I could do that again. But um, So if I open the fortune cookie, what would the fortune cookie message say about how you did it, in a glib little fortune cookie way? You know, I think, I think we were at the right place at the right time. We leveraged our network well, and we were very productive characters, and we hired people who helped us be productive, and, and we got, all got a lot done together. We made decisions very fast, saw opportunities quickly, and and we were in a world where we, we were focusing on the internet, and the internet was a brave new world, and you know everybody was interested in it. So you know we were on the radio, we were in newspapers, all that sort of stuff, which helped us punch above our weight very quickly. But to be fair, the original business plan when we left McKinsey wasn't to do an internet research firm. Uh, it was something slightly different, and. Uh, and we realised, literally, almost literally, as we had just launched ourselves off the diving board, we suddenly, it was almost analogous, if I'm going to stick with that analogy, to suddenly discovering that there's no water in the pool. Um, and we sort of realised that actually that initial business plan wasn't going to work and we were going to have to find another one. But it was too late to change course. So, um, But then we were very, very focused people in a, in a real hurry. And we came up with the idea of an internet research firm quickly. And it, it was essentially based on some companies I'd already discovered and learned about when I was um, at McKinsey. And so there was a sort of template to follow. And that really helped us. And it was one of those companies who ended up 
coming to chat to us uh, in year three and saying, should we be doing this together? It was a very big fortune cookie, the one we were just talking about. Yes. But that's okay. Now that you've seen and now that you've invested in probably 10, 15, 20 businesses along the last 20 or so years, how much um, import do you put on the piece of paper called the business plan? Or is it just a red herring? It obviously very much depends on the size of business. If you're a publicly quoted large firm with thousands of staff in it, the business plan or a financial plan budget, whatever it's going to be called, is a pretty relevant document. I mean at the startup and, uh, phase. But as, yeah. a, as a startup business, um, the business plan is an essential document and it's a meaningless document both at the same time. You know, you, you need a clear idea on what the business is trying to do and you need an idea on why it has a right to exist and you need an idea. I, I'm always looking probably a little bit more sharply than some of the other investors I know. I'm looking for a reason to think this, why this company is going to win. And the business plan will, or whatever you call that, most of the investments I make, I mean, companies don't actually really have what I think your accountant would call a business plan. So what are you backing at that point? But they'll have, a, they'll have a presentation, they'll have a pitch, they'll have a story to tell. And the story to tell will include things like this is the market we're going into, this is why we think there's an opportunity, this is what we're doing for it. This is a, and what I, hopefully, a lot of early stage businesses wouldn't, but the ones I back probably will, some idea of what the economics are going to be like, what the margins are going to be, etc. And um, one of the things I'm asking is what, what, what makes you think you can win? And whether if you ask those questions two years later, you still get the same answers is almost irrelevant, and often you won't. Uh, so in that respect, you know, it's like one of those military plans, isn't it? It never survives first contact with the enemy. But if people haven't thought about those questions the way you would to write a business plan, then they're not going to raise an investment from people like me. And beyond the um, rational answer to the question, how, what, do you, what are you going to do to win, how you make sure you win, what are you listening out for? What is it, the skill that you've developed over the years, specifically that enables you to hopefully pick winners rather than losers? Good question. I think some sense that they've done some of this before, uh, some sense that they they think analytically, some sense there's good logic to the why they're going to win, and that logic's going to is going to be apparent even when they're not in the room. So it's going to be a story you can tell in the pub. Oh, I met this guy this morning, and he's setting up this business, and it's going to revolutionise widgets by because uh, he's found snake oil, and snake oil really works. You know, you need something which can genuinely. Um, survive the telling third hand fourth hand etc mm. but i think a lot of this is difficult to put your finger on and if it was easier we, everybody would do it and uh but there's no guff with you william right i mean immediately we don't know each other but i can tell that you're going to say it as you see it and you're going to be looking for logic um and yes you're right you're kind of then well can i tell this story is it clear abc that i can then go along and do that but often people confuse storytelling with some kind of marketing Puff. Yeah, you're the antithesis of puff. I'm not, I don't know. That feels like that to me. That, but, but, that, but, but then, but then, what's the super skill? Is the super skill that I am going to very logically look at whether this will emotionally connect, even if I'm not emotionally engaged in the way that you might think I would be? If that makes sense, are you almost kind of distant from it and just being very, very tough on the, the story itself? I don't think I'm as logical or analytical or tough as um, as other people I might know. I think at the same time, though. I'm an analytical sort of person by nature. I've always been interested in business, probably even ever since a teenager. And I have a reasonable feel for businesses quickly. So you can you can talk to me about almost any business and I'll have a rough idea on how it works, what its margins are, kind of what's difficult about it, you know, what's stopping it growing further, etc. I, I, I can get right into the meat of a com- of business conversation pretty quickly. So, for example, I spoke to a lady this week who's trying to raise money for a business. It's, it's not really a technology business, so it's not... Str- 
it's not a straightforward one for me to assess, but she told me her story. It's quite an interesting story. One of the things I liked about it is it is based on a model which has been starting to succeed in another country overseas. Um, that's good because, again, early stage business, how do you assess the risk? Well, if you can see this model happening somewhere else, that makes it sound much lower risk than you're inventing it from scratch. And she told me, you know, what her credentials were and what her team is, what progress she's making, all, all good. And the one thing that had me kind of scratching my head a bit, and I said to her, this is probably the single, the single least good thing you've told me was she was talking about the gross margins that she's expecting to make here. In other words, um, for any extra £100 of sales she makes, how much of that, what cost does she incur in providing an extra £100 of service? The gross margin she's trying to make there is um, about 25%. And as I said to her, like, there are very few businesses that succeed with gross margins of 25%. I just know that. I know that from experience. I know that from other businesses. I've, I've backed um, I've had one of the early conversations I had at Gray's, the snack business. Uh, their initial business plan had a gross margin of 35%. And I remember having the conversation with the founders at that point, like that gross margin is not high enough. I was right about that. And actually, by the time that we'd sold the business, we had the gross margins up to 60%. But it was uh, actually the founders, very much to their credit, like they took that input and immediately started doing something about it. So even by the time we launched the product, the plan was for it to be in 45% mm. and, and gross margins ultimately, which became a big deal for that business. Um, so in that instance, and we, we're going to come back to you in a, in a few minutes, but in that instance, it was all about identifying the issue with the setup, the issue within the panoply of things that she talked about. Yeah. And, and yeah. you went, thank you very much. Yeah. Stay with me for much more um, from my um, business shape. It's William Reeve, co-founder of Love Film. Uh, multiple investor, and he's currently, and we're going to come and talk about operational stuff, he's currently, I believe, the CEO at Goodlord. That's right. Right now, then, we're going to hear some uh, advice, I hope, for your business, beyond William's advice for you. It's from our program partners at Mishkondre, and here it comes. Hi, I'm Daniel Avener, CEO of MDR Brand Management, the fourth non-legal business entity that's been set up as part of the Mishkondre Group. And we help companies build commercial value for their brands and intellectual property across the business world. Today, there have never been more complex challenges for companies in the global marketplace, especially when brand owners are looking to grow both in the UK and internationally. One area that should be considered when looking to expand your brand is brand licensing and franchise development. By harnessing the equity and the awareness of a brand, Licensing and franchise development can often be an extremely cost-effective, low-risk strategy, one that can allow you to expand into new geographies and global markets, launch new product categories. It can be an effective marketing tool to create new connections and consumer messaging, bring a brand to life through branded consumer experiences, and also protect a brand owner's trademark. MDR Brand Management can assist in all aspects of the licensing and franchise process to ensure that you generate significant and long-term revenue streams for many years ahead. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers. Indeed, you can hear this programme with William again. Just ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers, and there you can hear many of the recent programmes. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive. Back to today, it's William Reeves, serial entrepreneur, angel investor, co-founder of Love Film, and much more. So um, I think we've initially established that you were going to do your own thing. It didn't really matter what it was. You kind of had a good run at it for the first few years. 
after that, and you make some money at a pretty young age, um, and we talked about in the context of the much bigger value that you sold Love Film for, do you then liberate yourself because money is no longer an issue? Do you go post-status, as it were? Or is that just me looking from the outside going, I bet it feels great not to worry about money? So, look, I think when I first made some money in my 20s, it was more money than I thought I'd be making probably in my career, and um, that was very liberating and, and created a huge sense of freedom, actually. As it turns out, I ended up making... I made more money later, but I made less money, for example, out of Love Film than I made out of my first business. That was because Love Film was a venture capital-backed business, and it had formed out of the merger of lots of other companies. So the net ownership of that business by me was... Uh, although I think I had the highest stake of any of the founders and management by the end, it was still a very small level of ownership compared to my first business where we didn't take in any external investment. and we, My business partner and I essentially owned the whole business. But I think when you're in your 20s, you don't really think too much about this. If you can sort of buy yourself a house and buy yourself a car without thinking what it costs, you're sort of feeling like that seems like plenty of money. What more can you need? But I think as I started to then reflect later on in my career, after, after for example, I left Love Film, do I actually need to work ever again? I had to do some sums on that. I didn't have quite enough to be able to go, you know. I can, I can see that my uh, cost of living has expanded. I can see that my... Um, you know, responsibilities I didn't used to have. I can see that life is a bit more expensive than I probably would have dreamed about when I was uh, in my 20s. If I were never to work again and life carries on getting more expensive, then what happens? So I had to do some sums on that. But um, I think eventually I kind of persuaded myself that the sky would have to fall in to make me have to go out and get a job or get mm. a, a register for the doll. And then, and then in terms of the people you met along the way, and we mentioned, we mentioned Alex Chessman at the beginning. Alex is a good friend of yours and a yeah. co-investor. And I think Simon Franks, who I've interviewed on the programme, is also involved in all that. Is the level of trust that you build with that person circumstantial, i.e. you've gone in, you've got similar ideas, you've gone through the same process, you're living in the same world, is it based on that or is it something more fundamental? Because often I look at, you know, I I might be in a private members club one night, perish the thought, and I might see three famous comedians all with each other and I think, are they friends because they're really friends or are they friends because they're going through the same thing, which is they're famous, they're funny, well, they're not that funny when they're switched off, as we all know, and they just want to talk to people like them. Is it something deeper than that? So I certainly think I find it easy to establish a rapport with entrepreneurs because I kind of connect with those people and birds of a feather, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are some entrepreneurs you would go to the end of the earth for and there are some entrepreneurs you'd view as not people you want to have to depend on. And I think if you take, for example, Alex Justin, when I first met him, we were both on a pretty similar journey. Potentially, we might have ended up competing with each other. Uh, we're both looking to try and set up the same basic concept, um, and uh, we were independent at that point. Alex had something that I had been looking for, which was an answer to the question of how are we going to win here, um, because he had a commercial partnership that uh, gave a good answer to that question. And I had something that I think, whether he knew it or not, he needed, which was quite a lot of experience in technology. So actually, I think the two of us realized we'd be a more effective force together, but we were still quite unknown quantities to each other, and weren't, you know, I wasn't 100%, wasn't 100% sure that how I could trust him in if you know if push came to shove. Um, but I think by the point that we've raised money together, faced some quite difficult situations together, we, we, we've turned out to be, of all the countries in the world which, which had models a bit like Love Film running around, we were the country in the UK, which, which was the first one that Blockbuster launched an online service in. And we had Sky, of course, which is a pretty strong and formidable business. And we had, um, and actually it turns out Amazon, of all people, decided to launch a competitive service in the UK as well, again, which they never ended up doing in the US. So we found ourselves in quite a cauldron together, and I think we forged out of that a very, very strong uh, bond together. 
In terms of close bonds that you have with the teams that you lead, and the interesting thing about you, William, is that you you are an investor, but you're also now running. You're now running. You are running currently running a business. You're also a non-exec. You sit in lots of different camps. I remember years ago I interviewed Luke Johnson, mm-hmm. and what struck me about Luke was that he's not only a doer, he's also an observer of doing, and obviously that changes things somewhat. And he's able to observe and able to say, actually, this is how this is what I'm feeling. And he's been through some tough times, but it's all been well coming through them. What do your teams think about you? What's the common feedback that you've got over the years about how William is to actually work for if they, if you weren't in the room? Yeah, if I wasn't in the room, good question. And uh, I try and stay in the room for those conversations. But uh, <laughs> I, um, uh, but you can't, sir. They talk about you anyway. Yeah, I think um, whether they would say this or whether, or whether I, I'm just going to impose this view on them, um, <laughs> I think I, um, I'm very keen to try and build a, collaborative and sort of consultative approach to making decisions. So um, I, I don't try and impose answers. I'm not very autocratic. I remember a business leader I really respect actually saying to me a few years ago, he said, there are two models for sort of how you can run teams and businesses. There's the there's the sort of t- team of equals and working in a like really consensual, collaborative way. And then, of course, there's the kind of opposite, like the 800-pound gorilla model. And I'm the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, and uh, I am the collaborative consensual team type person and I think I, t- I take something about how I what I learned from McKinsey um, into how I run teams and that is uh, McKinsey had used to have this concept of high performing teams and I um, found that really useful and, I, and that's all about really you've got the right people in the team you've got clear roles established you've got clear accountability you've got a very clear joint sense of what the objective is and you've got high levels of communication and trust and also McKinsey if you've got an issue you're not performing your role properly if you don't put your hand up with the boss. You've got an obligation to dissent. Yeah. Obligation to dissent. I yeah. love that as yeah. a value of McKinsey. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, no, that's right. Although actually that, I don't think I bring, that's that's quite a lot about, um, that's that's somewhat unique to consulting, I think, the value of that. Uh, but the um, the world I'm trying to create is one where I've got a good cast of characters. I'm trying to be relatively unhierarchical, I'm trying to make sure everybody knows what they've what the business is trying to achieve and then what their role in it is trying to achieve. And we have a very open and transparent conversations around how are we doing against that. And any idea can be the right answer. And I suppose in that respect, that part of what McKinsey's trying to do is it's got some quite junior guys and he wants to make sure their ideas carry as much weight as yeah. the very senior guys because they're probably as smart as the senior guys. They're just 20 years earlier in their career. And I think I, I take... I don't use the obligations of dissent, but I do start from the point of view of one of my team would call it sort of avoid hippos, which is the highest paid person's opinion. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I want I want nothing about hippo. I want I want we're going to be fact based and meritocratic, and we're going to find the right answer. And I don't care where it comes from. Yeah. And I'm, and, I'm all... it, and in terms of all the different businesses you've worked in and different roles, have you and I, Paddy Power, obviously Gray's, who's non-exec chairman, Zoopla, non-exec director, Hubbub co CEO, and I could go on. When are you at your happiest? When is it? Is it? Is it in the operational role? Is it in the director role? Is it in the investment role? At what point do you go? Actually, this kind of works for me, or is it the combination that works? I think the absolute best outcome, from my point of view, is when you're running on an operational level a highly performing team, and you're getting stuff done, you're making things happen, you're creating value, you're building something that's going to last. And when you can do that on a full time basis, and you can see your role in that, that's that's a nine or ten outcome. Nine, nine or ten out of ten outcome. I think when you, when you're a non-exec, on a good board of an interesting business, that's at least an eight out of ten outcome, and, and that that actually probably represents the best single bang for buck. Yeah. Uh, because in one day, a month, or whatever it is, you can get a lot done 
uh, and m- more done than in you know, one twentieth of twenty days a month. You're doing a full time job, so um, a good non-exec role it can be good, but you don't I think ever quite get it to the nine or ten out of ten because you don't ever quite have the same feeling of sort of band of brothers sort of rolling your sleeves up, feeling like we've got a kind of level of bond and accountability for this that you just can't really get when you're on the sidelines as a non-exec is. Stay with me for my final chat with William Reeve. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Jimmy Ponder. That's in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Jimmy Ponder with Mean Streets, No Bridges. What a good name. William Reeves, my business shaper, just for a few more minutes. Right now, you're the CEO of Good Lord, this new, clever digital platform for renting. What's it like running the business? Um, what's the team like? What are over all the, the cumulative years of experience, William, taught you about the optimum high-performance team that you need to create? What's going on right now for you? So Good Lord, it wasn't the business I started. It was, it was set up by three three young lads uh, a few years ago who were all renting uh, and didn't enjoy that the experience of becoming a renter. And actually one of them was actually working for an estate agency and so he, he kind of saw it from the inside out as well and they all realised that this, this could be a lot better, this process. And, you know, it's, it's practically, a, renting's like practically in the Bible, isn't it? And, and yeah, actually there's all this technology these days which makes, gives you ways of doing things in a much more uh, enjoyable and slick and efficient process. So it wasn't my idea... I joined the business, of course, but I, you can understand it, can't you? It's renting is a pretty fundamental thing. There are 10 million rental homes in the UK, and we've all done it at some point. And but I had to, I had to make sure before I took on the role that the people in the business were going to be people I could work with. And um, luckily, there are a lot of very, very talented people there. I think renting being broken is something which any generation rent and the millennials in London like do not need to be told twice. So we've got some very talented people, very bought into that mission of making renting the best possible experience it can be. And a lot of those guys were great for me, actually. They're really welcoming of my um, entry into the business. And we, I think I'm actually really proud of sort of how the team's taken the business forward in the last little while. And, and most of the key guys in the team are people who were there before I joined, but have just, I think, benefited from, uh, from, from kind of making sure we've all got clarity on what we're trying to achieve and we're working as a team together and we're, we're much more, uh, more high-performing team than the business has managed to be before um, probably 2018. Let me ask you a slightly different question. I was going to ask you a couple of quick ones, and then we're going to go to your song choice. So obviously you invest in businesses. If you were to give one bit of advice to a young person thinking about coming to an investor, what would you say is the most important thing they ought to do when they come and present? I don't know that I have a crisp one-liner for that. I think, the, I think at the end of the day, it's a competitive world out there. You've got to figure out a way of winning. So whatever you're trying to do, in any, whether it's... And I don't mean necessarily in a sharp elbowed way, but I mean for a business to grow, it's 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 going to have to either be creating something out of nothing, or it's going to have to be winning share. It's going to be winning, and that that you as an individual have got to have a reason why you versus everybody else in the space or beyond why you have a way of winning. Very good. And money. We started talking about money and the liberating impact of money. Here we are in 2019, 22 years since you set up your first business. And in fact, it's uh, just recently we've had the 20th anniversary of that first sale of life-changing event for me. 
Right, and so life-changing now, what does that mean to you now, William? Has your relationship with money changed over those 22 years? I think I am reasonably money motivated, remain reasonably money motivated, and I think I owe that to my mother, really. My, my mother was, is an American accountant, and uh, I think I, and has, has always taken an interest in stocks and shares, for example, and, and I've, I've got that from her, and definitely not from my classics academic father who uh, has no interest in any of those matters um so my, my relationship with money i suppose i've always been i've always been motivated by it i definitely see it now as uh i want my money working for me rather than i'm working for money and that that's been a change over the last 20 years it's been really good to talk to you um the last jazz shape of 2019 it's a special honor we haven't conferred it on anyone before because this is the only last show of 2019. We'll be back in uh, February, but lots more of that across January here on Jazz FM. Just before I let you go, though, and thank you very much for your time, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So I've chosen the, um, a particular version of Girl from Ipanema. That particular version, there's no particular story behind it, but I think uh, I'm somebody who... I, I, I always love music. I always love listening to music. If I get a choice, I'm always, I've always got music playing in any room I'm in. Um, but I never, ever hear the vocals. Uh, so I was totally unaware, actually, of the relevance of the, the tune from Girl from Ipanema until um, I went to um, Rio de Janeiro and Ipanema with my wife some years back. And I had a real kind of thunderclap moment of like, wow, this is a famous song from this famous beach. And it, made me, it made me appreciate the, the beach and the neighborhood and it made me appreciate what I was missing, I suppose, by not really paying attention to vocals. I'm not so into the kind of depressing, uh, soulful side of jazz. I'm more interested in the uplifting side of jazz, and I think Girl From Ipanema is, is that for me. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça Ela menina que vem, que passa Num doce balanço, caminho do mar that was The Girl from Ipanema, the song choice of my business shaper today, William Reeve. He talked about the importance of finding a way to win. That lies at the centre of every good business he's ever been involved with. He talked about a non-hierarchical collaborative approach to leadership. You don't have to be the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And finally, what struck me is that for someone who's so successful over such a long period of time, he was incredibly honest. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Here's to a fantastic 2020. Happy New Year. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.